Well, we continue in the little book of Jonah. And so I'll ask you to turn there in your Bible to Jonah chapter 1. So why do we read the Old Testament? Why study the Old Testament? You know, it's old after all, right? Why, why preach from the Old Testament? Well, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament said this in Romans 15, 4. He said, for whatever was written in former days, speaking of the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we should expect, according to Paul, that swimming in Jonah's story will encourage us and give us hope. How will it do this? Well, as we look at the surface of the waters of Jonah's story, we're going to first see our own hearts reflected there. We're going to see our sin. We're going to see our own running away from God. So how is that encouraging? Well, but then if we'll dive deep under the surface of Jonah's story, we're going to possibly find some hidden treasure down there, way down deep. Because if we'll do it, we just might see the heart of God for runaways like Jonah and runaways like us. So Jonah's story will encourage us and give us hope if we'll look for it and we'll trust the Spirit to speak to us through it. So as you stand for the reading of God's Word, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll hear God's Word. Lord, I ask now that you will encourage your people today with this little book that was written in former days for our present instruction. Show us our runaway hearts, Lord. But then show us, Jesus, your rescuing heart so that we might hope in you and not in ourselves. In your great and gracious name we pray. Amen. Now, hear the inspired, inerrant, incredible word of God. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish 
And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the, mere, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A sweet, sticky, viscous, yellow-brown liquid made by bees. Do you know what I'm defining, what, what that dictionary definition describes? A sweet, sticky, viscous, yellowish-brown liquid made by bees. What is it? Honey. honey. Is there anyone here who has never tasted honey before? Okay. Was there anyone here who would like to taste some honey? The first three people who come up here right now will get to taste some honey. Here we go. One, two. Oh, take a spoon. There we go. Here's our third. Take a spoon. Thank you so much. I'm going to have some. Okay, just put it over that plate. Just lay it on that plate. There you go. And I'm just going to pour some of this sweet, sticky, viscous, yellowish-brown liquid made by bees onto your spoon. And then we'll all enjoy some of it together. Here we go. Are you ready? Oh, boy. Go for it. Oh, man. You, you see why they call it sweet. What do you think? Sticky? Tastes great. Mmm. You want more, don't you? All right, I'll give you one more. The first one is free. 
Just kidding. Okay. You can take this one back with you. Don't let anybody lick it. It's yours. Okay. Good job. Oh, man. That is so good. It tastes like flowers. So... Once you've experienced how honey tastes, it helps you to know what honey really is. It makes that definition come alive. It makes those words come alive. And the same is true about knowing God's heart. About 300 years ago, a really smart fellow named Jonathan Edwards said this, he said, there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. And he said, similarly, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. He that has perceived the sweet taste of honey knows much more about it than he who has only looked upon it and felt it. He who has perceived, has tasted the sweetness of honey knows more about honey than the one who only knows the definition. Now, Edwards is saying that a person who's tasted the loveliness and beauty of God's holy and gracious heart knows much more about God's heart than one who has only been told that God's heart is holy and gracious. Remember last week that we said that Jonah knows the heart of God. He, he said in chapter 4, which we'll come to in a few weeks, he said, he said, I knew that you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting it of disaster. I, I knew this about you. But how did Jonah know? How did Jonah know this? It's, he was like every other he Hebrew who ever grew up who had been told all their life about the heart of God. You see, these folks cut their teeth on the stories uh, of Moses. They cut their teeth on the story of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and uh, we just read this earlier in the service that when Moses stood on the mountain receiving those two tablets, God himself told Moses what his heart was like. He said, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God, a, God of, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Jonah is quoting this passage in chapter four of Jonah because he knows, he's been told all his life that this is what God's heart is like. I knew that's what you were like, God. Jonah knows what he's been told about God's heart, but God is about to give Jonah a taste of his heart. But 
but this is a strange way to give somebody a taste of your loving and gracious heart, isn't it? A call to go preach to these people who will probably kill you. A storm. A great big fish that swallows you up and spews you out later. This is a strange way to show love, isn't it? But God loves Jonah. He loves him. This whole book is about the love of God for sinners like Jonah, like you and me. He's going to show Jonah the love that Jonah's been told all his life is true. He's going to taste it. But before God gives Jonah a taste of the sweetness of his heart for sinners, God's going to let Jonah get a taste of the bitterness of his own sin. It's so strange that God lets him do this. Look, God lets Jonah go away. Three times we're told that Jonah tried to flee to go away from the presence of the Lord. If I were God and Jonah said, no, I ain't doing it, I'd have squashed him like a bug and enjoyed it. But God doesn't do that to Jonah. He he lets him go. He could have snuffed him out, but he didn't. And in verse 3, it says, Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He just happens to find the the very boat he's looking for. How convenient. God seems to be letting Jonah run away from him. And then God lets Jonah go down, 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 down. That word is mentioned four times in the first two chapters. Verse 3, Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. Verse 5, he had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And then in chapter 2, after he's thrown into the sea, Jonah went down to the bottom to what he called the roots of the mountains under the sea. God just let him go down and down and down all the way to the bottom. And then God lets Jonah harden his heart against God and against people. One of the most disturbing verses in chapter 1 is verse 5. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So while the storm of God's wrath is swirling all around him and people's lives are in imminent danger, Jonah's taking a good nap. God had allowed Jonah's heart to get that hard, his conscience to become that calloused, that he was numb to God and to people. God let him go. You see, God knew that in order for Jonah to really know and taste God's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, steadfast, forgiving love for sinners, Jonah was going to have to get a real taste of his own sin, a real taste of his own need for that love. I mean, listen to the descriptions of God's heart. (laughs) 
All of these descriptions are ways to describe God's love for sinners. Gracious. He's, God's heart is gracious. Well, grace is the undeserved, unearned gift of God's favor. So that requires someone who doesn't deserve or could never earn God's favor. Well, that person is Jonah, and that person is Jimmy, and that person is you. God's heart is merciful. But mercy is God's compassionate pity to forgive needy sinners. So mercy requires a needy, pitiful sinner to forgive. Enter Jonah, Jimmy, and you. God's heart is slow to anger. Well, think about it. You can't know God's anger is slow unless there's a reason for you to expect his anger to be quick. Right? (laughs) Jonah should have expected God's anger to be quick. Jimmy certainly should expect God's anger to be quick. I'll let you determine whether you think it should be quick on you. But God's heart is slow to anger. And God's heart is abounding in steadfast love. And you, you can't know God's love is steadfast unless there's a good reason for his love to give up on you. Right? Jonah gave God a good reason to give up on him. Jimmy has given God millions of reasons to give up on him. And so have you. But his love is steadfast. And then Jonah knew that God's heart was relenting from disaster. How can God relent from bringing the disaster of judgment unless there had been a reason to judge? It's hard to relent from something that wasn't necessary. Jonah's the reason for God's judgment. So is Jimmy. And so are you. So in order to know God's love for sinners, we have to know we are sinners. It, it's just part of the definition. It's, it's in the package. But here's the thing. You know and I know. You can't just simply tell someone they're a sinner. You, have you tried it? Did they buy it? You can't just simply tell someone they're a sinner. You have to show them. God could have told Jonah till he was blue in the face, hey, don't forget, you're a sinner. But I think what he's doing is he's showing him. He's letting him taste it for himself. So God, in his gracious love for Jonah, lets Jonah get a taste of his own runaway heart so that he can get a better taste of God's rescuing heart. God did this for me in seminary. In my first two years of seminary, God's good news of his love for me lost its flavor on my desk and in my books. And without going into all the details, I I went down, 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 down into a cold, callous heart for God and for people, including my wife. And God let me go. He didn't stop me. 
And he let me see what my heart was capable of doing. He let me see that I was capable of running away from his word and his presence. I knew about grace, but he wanted to show me how much I needed grace. And so he sent a storm of pain and personal failure that drove me to cry out for help. And thanks be to God, he heard my cry and he gave me a taste of his love for me that I'd never had before. And I'm sure you've got stories like that too. God so loved Jimmy that he sent a storm. God so loved Jonah that he sent a storm. And in this storm, on this ship, with these sailors, God gave Jonah a 4D experience of how God rescues sinners from themselves. You know those 4D movie things you can go to at Universal Studios or Six Flags or whatever, where it's not just a 3D movie, but they splash water on you. They fly you all over the place. You, you, you're immersed in the experience. This is what God is doing with Jonah. He's immersing him in this 4D experience of what it looks like to rescue sinners from themselves. Jonah gets a front row seat to watch the sailors get rescued by God. This is fascinating. Listen to this. So the storm of judgment comes, and it disrupts these sailors' lives. Life is not going to work like it used to for these sailors. You know, they don't usually travel during the uh, stormy season, so they're not expecting there to be a storm, but along comes a storm and disrupts their lives. And so what do they do? They look to their false gods to save them. Nope, no answer. Everyone called out for his own God. Nobody came to rescue them. What else did they do? They... They tried to get rid of their own baggage, throw it overboard. They tried to rearrange things on the boat to keep it afloat the best they could. Nope, not going to work. God's storm is too good, too strong. And then they hear one of God's people say that it's going to require the sacrifice of one person to save all the people. They heard a person of God say that. They considered it, and they thought, well, no, that doesn't sound right, so let's just keep rowing. And they dig in, and the, the word is literally, they dug their oars in. They, they dig even harder into their own self-salvation projects. We can do this. We don't need to turn to God. And finally, they come to the place that every single woman, man, girl, and boy who is rescued by God, has to come at some point. Verse 13, but they could not. They couldn't row their, ways, their way back to shore. They could not. And so at that point, they had to abandon their own plans to rescue themselves, the, their plans to make life work for them. They, they had to abandon all their own self-salvation projects. They 
They had to trust that their rescue depended on the sacrifice of one man for many. There it is, Jonah, in living color. You've been doing what these sailors are doing. You've been scrambling to make your life work apart from the word and presence of God. You're just like these pagans. And Jonah, these sailors came to a place where they could not. Maybe there's a way to say that. I can't even. They couldn't. And Jonah, you need to come to a place where you find that you cannot. And that's when you'll not just know my love, but you'll taste it. You see, God sent Jonah to call out against Nineveh so that God could rescue them. God sent a storm to call out against Jonah so that he could rescue him. Friends, God loves you so much. He loves me so much that he sends storms to give us a taste of the lengths to which he'll go to show us his love. The only means to be saved from the storm of God's judgment is for the right man to be thrown into the storm of judgment. But was Jonah the right man? Did Jonah really pay for those sailors' sins? No. He was tossed over for his own sin. In fact, you'll remember that they had to still make sacrifices to God at the end of all this. So Jonah's story leaves Jonah and, and the sailors and you and me. It leaves all of us looking for that one man who can be sacrificed to save us all. This story cries out for, who is that person? And you know, and I know, there's only one man who had no sins of his own to pay for. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. <laughs> Jonah was willing to be sacrificed because he knew he was guilty. Jesus was willing to be sacrificed for the guilty, even though he was innocent. And the story of Jonah reminds us that while in our sin we try to run away from God's word and God's presence, in our skin and for our sin, Jesus Christ, who is God's word and is God's presence, came running after us. I talked to a man a little while ago who was just brokenhearted. He was brokenhearted over his own sin and how he believes that it, it, his one sin had ruined the rest of his life. He said, I sinned against God and now God is punishing me by taking away something I love. And I said, since, God, since Jesus has already been punished in your place, 
God's not punishing you in this. He's pursuing you. R.C. Sproul said there's a, there's a difference between God's punitive wrath and his corrective wrath, his punishing wrath and his training wrath. Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's punitive, punishing wrath so that the worst of God's wrath that you and I would ever know from now on is just his corrective training wrath. And those storms come from his pursuing love. Those storms come as a gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and forgiving correction to us, a wooing to us to call us back to his heart. Hebrews 12 tells us the Lord disciplines those he loves. And if you don't get corrected by God, then you're not his child. One of my favorite hymns, and we sing it here fairly often, says, I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work good for me. Because the storms that we face as his children are not storms of punishment, but storms of pursuit. <laughs> Last week I ended with story time, and I'm going to do that again today, but don't get used to it, all right? I can't do this every week. The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis is it not one of the best? Uh, much to my children's dismay and probably need for therapy now, when they were young, I would sometimes visit their classes dressed up as a little old man and use my English accent and read from the Chronicles of Narnia to them. Thankfully, they are not here today. Listen to this. This is... Shasta is the boy who has the horse. This is the end of the story. Um, he's riding his horse in the darkness. I'll let Shasta tell the story. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries, 
He bit his lip in terror. But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything in a breakaway in a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, Shasta could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are, 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 you, are, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I, I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for even a more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, you're, you're, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, oh, please, please do go away. And what harm have I ever done you? Oh, I'm the unluckiest, unluckiest person in the world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little, a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all of their dangers in the Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus. And also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. 
I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to, to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for, child, said the voice. I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. He turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it or else could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. And of course, he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything. And he knew he needn't say anything. Friends, before we begin to believe that we must be the unluckiest people in the world to meet so many storms, let us remember that there is grace in the storm because God is in the storm. Jesus is in the storm that pursues you. Jesus is pursuing, pursuing you. And God wants the storms in your life to expose your heart's desperate need for his heart because he wants you to not only know that his heart for you is sweet and good, he wants you to taste it. Father, we thank you that you pursue us in the storm. And sometimes, like these sailors, the storms are not about our sins. They're about somebody else sinning against us. Not every, not every storm is because of our sins, but every storm is an opportunity to, for us to look at the ways we try to make life work apart from you. Those sailors had the opportunity to look and to learn how they had not submitted to you because they were suffering from Jonah's storm. Lord, you do it. 
Jonah said in the bottom of the belly of that fish, salvation belongs to the Lord, and you, you do it. You do it for Ninevites, you do it for sailors, you do it for your own people, you do it for us. And in this table, Lord God, you give us a taste of the sweetness of your good and gracious heart toward us. Help us to trust it. Help us to long for more of it. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.